Have you ever found yourself being a cheerleader for the improbable? There's a verse I want to share with you to predicate where we're going this morning, and it is a a verse that I experienced in a particular capacity this week. Uh, It was not an easy week. You guys might have had a week like that. I don't know for sure. Um, But Paul is very clear in talking about the realities that are at stake for each person. And he pulls no punches. He hides nothing when he says to the church in Rome, the wages of sin is what? But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I held hands with death this week. Can I just tell you, it's very ugly. It's extremely ugly. And if it were not for the saving power of Jesus Christ, what we would all experience is death eternal. The beauty of that moment was praying with my friend Eric as he was preparing to go home and be freed from suffering. Reminding him of the confidence he has. Number one, because of sin, we're all going to die. None of us are going to escape that. That will come in different forms, different ways for different people. But we're all going to die unless the Lord comes back and takes us to Him. But the second thing to hold on to there in the verse, did you hear it? The wages of sin is death. That's an absolute. But the gift of God is what? It's eternal life. This is what's at stake. This is what is at stake. A few years ago, I was sitting next to uh, some individuals within our church that I love dearly. And we were at an A's game. And at that game, many of you might know that I am not particularly an A's fan. I am a Angels fan, which is the more spiritual choice, of course. I don't see any A's in Scripture. There's no athletics in Scripture. There's angels all through it. So deal with it. Anyway, my team needed the A's to beat the team they were playing that day for us to advance. And so I found myself in an unlikely situation of wearing an A's hat for a moment and actually letting the words come out of my mouth. I I can't say it. I can't say it right now because it doesn't matter. It's early in the season. But I said it then. I said those words. And that was the moment that the enemy of my enemy became my friend. Have you been there? Oh, it's so, it's just, you you need to take a shower after those moments. It's just wrong. So there's a lot of things like that going on all through our society. You know, I just heard last night that, you know, Chick-fil-A went out on a limb and stood up for traditional marriage. Didn't make any comments at all about gay marriage, just stuck up for traditional marriage. And suddenly they were boycotted and and uh, harassed, and, and, yet the, and yet the evangelical community came out in droves. Turns out that the president of Chick-fil-A has now recanted on that, and has gone backwards on that, and is now engaging in conversation with political activists on that. We saw that happen with World Vision two weeks ago, where World Vision came out with a statement saying that they were going to start hiring those who were not proponents of traditional marriage. And so then what happened as a stem of that is that Various Christian leaders talked to the board and encouraged the board and made mention to the board, um, maybe you want to look at what Christ's view is on this, and unfortunately it was another case of the enemy of my enemy is now my friend, and that friend and that enemy had something to do with dollars and uh, monies being dropped and support being dropped on a huge level. And although they came back 
to make a statement two days later that they were on board now again with a view of traditional marriage, it smells. Because the reason is they don't want to lose their support. Didn't have anything to do with the heart. And so even in our society today, we find ourselves wrecked with these situations where the integrity of somebody's choices is predicated often on the convenience of the moment and what it will do for me in the moment. Folks, this is called sin. And it's masked. It's masked. And today we're going to talk about this over and over and over about how we mask sin. Many pulpits refuse to say the three-letter word. Because they want to make sure these seats are filled. We don't want to talk about sin. It's the dirty little secret. There was a time in college where we had a, a banquet. I went to a, uh, I went to a Baptist college. And uh, so we, we didn't do dances. Uh, as a matter of fact, if we were running too fast on the athletic field, that could be interpreted as dance. So we got recommended for that, too. Uh, but we had a banquet, and the banquet was really boring. It was a beautiful place, but it was, I mean, it was the pinnacle of a snoozer. And it needed a little spicing up, and so you know, you have these tables that are filled with administrators and high marketing mucks and these kind of people, and we were bored out of our skull. They hired a comedy group that was from, I think, the 5th century, and, uh, and so that was going over like a jousting thing, and... and we were just bored. And so, sitting at this table was the college president, John McCarthy. Uh, now you know where I went. Um, the president of uh, student services, um, a couple other uh, high-level pastors, and um, major school administrators. And so what I did is when dessert came, I uh, put some lemon curd on the side of my face. Like I'd been, you know, eating it, but just it was just hanging there. And uh, I dismissed myself from my table and walked up behind Dr. Stem and Dr. McCarthy's chairs and leaned over the table and said, this is just a great banquet, gentlemen. Just want to thank you so much for uh, making this the best night. And just kept drumming on and on. And I remember the president of student services, Don Gilmore, who recruited me to that college, was now regretting it. <laughs> and he's just shaking his head and he's like this. You don't know what he said. Nobody said anything. It's there! Smushed on my face! And nobody says a word. They did say leave. But they didn't say anything about the lemon curd. Folks, we're quickly living in a society that refuses to speak about sin. But it is so obvious. And it does us no service to try to pretend it's not there. So this morning... We're going to look at what killed Jesus. First of all, our sin killed Jesus. But the passage that we're going to be in this morning takes us into the reality of the moment. And as I was looking at it, as praying over it, it just struck me over and over and over the blatant sin that was going on. And nobody wanted to talk about it. It was amazing. And yet everybody knew Secretly, it was there. So this morning I'm breaking it down into four different categories. Number one, the sin of avoidance. Number two, the sin of appearance. Number three, the sin of arrogance. Number four, the sin of alignment. Now just understand, the sin of alignment, what is this, like an auto-bible? What, you know, what, I've never heard of the sin of alignment. I'm taking a little liberty here, okay? So when we get to those sections, you'll hear that there is no specific sin of alignment. Don't worry about that. But it is a capstone for those areas that we fail in. So as we move through these, be, be, uh, be thinking. Be striving, be thinking. Let's start with the first one, the sin of avoidance. We're in verses 1 through 5. Let's look at it, John 19, 1 through 5. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a thorn, uh, I'm sorry, a crown of thorns, and put it on his head, and arrayed him in the robe. They came up to him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. 
So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Let's look at what Pilate did here in his sin of avoidance. He had Jesus flogged. Flogging uh, was a common practice of punishment. It was like the ultimate corporal punishment. And it went way beyond uh, the idea of just a, a whip. It often, we don't know for sure that that was the case in this situation, although the prophecy out of Isaiah, by his stripes we, we will be healed, certainly seemed to uh, emphasize this point. But sometimes you would have what's called like, similar to a cat of nine tails, which would be nine strands, not just one strand that you would be whipped with, but nine strands. And then they would be tied around rocks and shards of glass, so as they went around the body and you pulled, it would rip the flesh from your body. We don't know for sure that that's exactly what the Romans used when they flogged Jesus, but this was Pilate's attempt at avoiding what? Crucifixion. If I hurt him bad enough, I won't have to crucify him. Surely, surely that'll pacify the crowds. Jesus is crowned with thorns. The big debate here that's in the room is, is he a king? And so as he is flogged, they manufacture a mockery crown, and they cram it down onto his skull and leave it there. I often wonder what hurt worse, physicality or the mockery. Next, Jesus is mocked with the purple robe after... He is flogged and bleeding openly. They take a purple robe, which purple was the sign in, in that uh, culture, that society of royalty. And they took that robe and they put it over Jesus so that it would stick to him. And they mocked him. We find out as well that Jesus is struck and beaten continually. Isaiah 56 speaks about this as well. And if we look in Isaiah, we see passage after passage after passage that speaks to the prophecy of Scripture of the crucifixion. Let me read this for you. Verse 6 says, I give my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out my beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. All of this to avoid what? All of this to avoid crucifixion. You see, Pilate did this to teach Jesus a lesson. Don't cause trouble. Don't stir up the pot. Pilate also does this to appease the Jews. He's got a mad crowd in front of him. He's already upset them because of some things that he's done. The crowd is ready to riot. He needs to pacify them. Pilate does this to find an out, but he finds none. Have you ever been in that moment? And then we have the famous, Behold the man, ecce homo quote. What's behind that quote? You see, what, what did we say is on the table here? That the Jews are trying to use to get Pilate to follow through with capital punishment. It was punishable to try to usurp Caesar. And so that's their angle. They've thought about this. It's premeditated. It's coercion. It's conspiracy. And it's all out there in the open, but nobody's calling it what it is. And so he comes out and he presents Jesus after he's been flogged, after he's been beaten, after he's been mocked. This should pacify them. I'll avoid the crucifixion because I know that he's not worthy of capital punishment, but this should pacify them. And so he says, behold the king. Right? He doesn't say behold the king. Because he's working the room. He says, behold the man. Let's try to change the subject. So that we can all get what we want. Pilate was an eloquent politician. But as we learned last week, it didn't work out very well for him. This is to emphasize surely that you have it wrong. He is no king. Pilate's negotiating and he's losing. 
Have you ever negotiated and lost? How many of you have gone to those like like Tijuana and negotiated for stuff or or the Souk or the Conel Khalili, you know, and you're trying to get different prices for things and you really pride yourself in being able to do it, right? Like like you're sitting around back here in the States and you're talking about these deals that you work. I got a situation like that with my daughter Jericho. You know, a few years ago when we moved here, I had a car. It was a, I loved that car. It was a great car. As I'm, it was starting to fall apart, literally fall apart. As I'm driving down Concord Boulevard down here, uh, just outside of, of Concord High School, my seat back, uh, my chair, the back of my chair actually just broke and fell into the back seat as I'm driving. And I think that was the moment I knew, okay, probably a good time to offload this car. So we had to go car shopping, which I, that's right up there with running razor blades across my eyes. Um, as top 10 things to do just for fun. And so we, we went on the Internet, found, found uh, a, a place over in, uh, in Richmond that had a car that we were looking at. And so I decided, hey, let's have a daddy-daughter time, and I'm going to bring Jerrica with me. And at that time, I think she was like 10 years old. And so it's like, hey, you want to go with me to look at cars? Sure. And so we go, and, and we're walking around. We walk up on this... this um, Ford dealership, because I thought, sure, surely it'll be there. And we, uh, we walk up, and here comes the salesman, and so I start getting Jericho ready. I go, okay, now this is what he's going to do, honey. Be prepared. He's going to say this, he's going to say this, and, and just watch that. Watch how we do this. So the guy says, well, what are you looking for? And I said, well, I found this expedition online, and I'm trying to find it. He says, well, that's not on our lot, but I have one. I said, oh, you do, do you? And uh, I said, so here's the number that I need. I said, you can get me an expedition for that price? He goes, yeah, I'm sure we could work something out. And I looked down at Jericho and I winked. And, I, and, and so I'm just going to entertain it so she can learn about this, right? And so I said, oh, okay, sure, show it to us. So he takes us over to the car that we now have, hint, hint. And, uh, and he shows us this car. I'm, I'm just laughing on the inside. I'm like, there's no way. There's no way this car costs what I can afford. And so uh, he starts going over all the stuff, and, and then he opens the back door, and he says, come here, young lady. And, and he looks, and he, he shows something to her that, in my mind, instantly is a downside because it's just going to break, and you're going to try to manipulate my family. by So it has a, a, a DVD thing, right? And he says, come here, sweetie. Look, at, look, you can watch movies in your car. And Jericho looks at me with, like, stars in her eyes. I go, focus, focus. She comes back, and, and so, uh, so I said, well, this isn't the one I was looking for. And I said, if you can get me a Carfax, I'll come back. You promise me? Yeah, I'll have it in 20 We go and we look at this other one, and it was really bad. It was really, really bad. So come back, look at the Carfax. Next thing I know, we're sitting at the table. He's got me at the table, folks. And now it's time to what? Negotiate. And so we're negotiating on stuff, and he's still like $3,000 off. And so where's he go? We never know where these guys go. He goes somewhere else, right? And he disappears. He's probably drinking coffee and, he, you know, and uh, watching One Life to Live or something. I don't know what he's doing. But uh, he comes back out and, you know, I, well, what I did at that moment is I took the time to turn to Jericho and I said, all right, you're going to be the negotiator now. Because in my mind, I'm like, this isn't happening, so let's have fun with it. I said, you're the negotiator now. And I wrote the number down on the piece of paper for her. I said, that's our number. And we don't change off that number. See if you can make it happen, Captain. And so this guy comes back and he sits down and he starts talking. And I said, oh, 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 I have management. From now on, all negotiations go through this 10-year-old. And she's wearing my huge leather jacket now, right? And so she's sitting there and she's negotiating. And he looks at, looks at her and then he looks back at me and he starts talking. And I said, whoa, you didn't hear me. Literally, this is the person to negotiate with. So he's like, what on earth? He looks at her and says, his whole demeanor changes. Good salesman. He says, sweetie, did you notice the DVD player in that car? Jericho didn't even hesitate. She said, my daddy taught me not to impulse buy. This is our number and we're not moving off of it. He fell over backwards. He didn't know what to do. And so I came out of that negotiating thinking I won. I, I negotiated four new tires for that car. And I was like a thousand over my number. But I'm like, I can't get four new tires. I could have got these four tires. So for a year, I believed I won that negotiation. And when I had to replace those tires in a year, 
I realized, ha, 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 he's laughing in his back room as I drove off the lot with his car. You know, sometimes we think we're going to win in negotiating. And while, Jericho, you did win, um, and, and we did win in that negotiation, it doesn't always work the way we think it does. And for Pilate, he's trying to negotiate. And it ends up biting him. He's using the sin of avoidance. He's not addressing what really needs to be addressed and taken care of and focused on. These are the effects of not drawing a line in the sand with sin. Now there's a statement in here that we're going to get to uh, that's problematic. I don't know if it bothers you, but it bothered me. Um, And so... Uh, as we as we look at the text and he's talking about sin, we're going to look at something eventually here that talks about greater sin versus lesser sin. Now, I don't know for you if that bothers you. You know, I've always kind of been raised that all sin is sin, right? Mm. Out of Jesus' own mouth, we see something a little bit different. And so we'll look at that coming up. Trading greater sin for lesser sin still yields hideous consequences. Pilate's publicist said that. Pilate tries to avoid killing Jesus by having him beaten and flogged because he knows he is innocent. In the end, what happens? He actually does both. Compromise can lead to unexpected consequences. Now when Pilate is negotiating with Jesus here, Down in verse 11, he says this. And and, and so we'll segue into the next passage here. Jesus answers him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. So let's move into that. This morning as we talk about this, we now talk about the sin of appearance and the emboldened hypocrisy of the Jewish priests and the Jewish leadership to crucify Jesus. This is the part of the lemon curd that's just hanging on their face and everybody wants to pretend it's really no big deal. Maybe a better visualization for you, and I use the word visualization visualization loosely, is think about a college dorm room of a young male athlete. (laughs) Some people are already there. And, uh, you know, let's just say that they have to keep their room clean. And there were times where, you know, we had some inspections in college. And there are times where I might even inspect my son's room if I'm courageous enough. And so you are the inspector and you walk in and the room looks great. But something's wrong. It's called odor. You may not see what's causing the odor, but the odor is there. And now you have a moral choice, my friends. Save yourself. Save this young man. Or just turn around and walk away. Because appearances say it's clean. But there's a smell. Where are you going to look if there's a smell? <laughs> Shoes. <laughs> Do you have a, did you raise a teenage son? Yeah. Closet, under the bed, on and on it goes. You see, the appearance, you walk in this church and, and we pay a lot every week to have this cleaned. We don't pay anything really to have the south side clean because none of you go down there. So we want to present to everybody that we're on top of it. We're taking care of our stuff. We're, our appearance is what it needs to be about. That makes us just like the hypocrisy of the priests let me share with you what i'm talking about let's read verse six through eight it says this when the chief priests and the officers saw him they cried out crucify him crucify him Pilate said to them take him yourselves and crucify him for i find no what guilt in him the jews answered him we have a law (laughs) our hands are tied we go we would, but we've we got this inconvenient law. Technically, we can't crucify him. And according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the what? 
The Son of God. Now let me share with you something real clearly. Underline this. Highlight it. Put stars next to it. For any person that wants to debate with you the authenticity of the divinity of Christ. Some of us in our life group went to see God's Not Dead last week. And one of the statements that was put out as an apologetic against an atheist was simply this. The reason that Jesus was killed was because he he claimed, he claimed, not me, he claimed to be God. So make no mistake about it. You and I can differentiate all we want. We can talk about the different appearances of who Christ is. He was a good man. He was a prophet. He was a great guy. He was a water on walker kind of dude. No, he said he was whom? The son of God, meaning I am equal with God. It is for this reason that the Jews wanted to kill him. So in my book, that takes away all the argument because Jesus said who he was. It's not to be debated. When Pilate heard the statement, he was even more afraid. Appearances. Appearances are a tricky thing. The Jews are suddenly interested in partnering with Pilate. Here it is. The enemy of my enemy is now my friend. They are continually at war with Rome. They wanted freedom. They believed the Messiah was going to come set up his kingdom and free them from the tyrannical rule of Rome. They hated Rome. And yet suddenly Pilate's their friend. Or Caesar is their friend. We'll, we'll hear this later on. But the sin of appearance is one that includes many compromises. Jesus called them whitewashed sepulchers. This goes back to the smell, right, of the college dorm room. Jesus, way before this moment, was engaging with these priests and was engaging with these Jewish leaders and the Pharisees who were hypocrites. On the outside, their appearance seemed to be all that and more in a slice of uh, holy peanut butter. But the reality was Jesus knew their heart. He knew that they smelled on the inside. You see, a sepulcher was where you let a body rot. And on the outside, you can have some great inscriptions. You can even paint it what? Paint it white. And if you go along the hills of Jerusalem, you will see these sepulchers marked all over the hills. And we might want to color up death to look a little bit better all we want, but we remove that lid and it's going to be bad. And this is what he called these Pharisees. Their appearance would seem like they're trying to uphold the law when in fact what they're really trying to do is get rid of Jesus because he's an inconvenient truth to their monopoly over people and over religion. He is a threat to them. That's the reality. So their pride feeds into this sin of appearance. They want to present themselves one way without any guilt. They'll manipulate the law and turn it into their own convenient truth. Yet on the inside, they are godless. There was plenty of sin this week to go around. They need Pilate and he needs them. They need Pilate to be the fall boy. They need Pilate to do their dirty work. Pilate needs them to calm down. As a matter of fact, most of the time, we learned this last week, most of the time, Pilate's up in Caesarea Maritima. That's where he resides. But he knew he had to come down for the Passover week and keep control over these crowds or he was in danger of losing his job. And it's all politics, right? You see, the Jewish leaders knew this. And they're playing the game. The sin of arrogance is next, verses 9 through 11. Let's read it together. He entered the headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has what? The greater sin. So now we move into the sin of arrogance. Pilate wasn't clear on who is in charge. Right? He's not clear on this one. 
He says, do you not know? Pilate flashes his authority here in front of Jesus. And, and what's he get back? So he says, do you not know? And Jesus says to him, you have no authority other than that which has been granted to you from heaven. Huh, trumped you. Trumped you. Wouldn't you. Would you have loved to have been there and watched this dialogue happen? The meek and humble Lamb of God sitting there quietly, yet oh so powerfully, totally in control. I believe this is why Jesus, I'm sorry, why Pilate was afraid of him. In another gospel, Pilate's wife comes to him and says, have nothing to do with this man. I had a dream last night. Have nothing to do with him. Pilate was afraid. And to think that we would, with arrogance, Maybe sit in that courtyard or stand in that courtyard. Or maybe we take the position of Pilate every day. And we play the authority. Do you believe that God would put Pilate into power? That's a hard one, isn't it? Because we vote for our political candidates that represent our views, maybe our biblical views. And when our candidate doesn't get in there, all hell's breaking loose on my, on my ability to speak. All hell's breaking loose all over the world now because this person is in office. Who has the authority? Out of Jesus' own lips. What is the worst thing you could possibly imagine that a political leader could do? How about kill your God? I haven't found one that trumps that yet. And yet, what does Jesus say about it? Kind of makes me take my arrogance, my self-pride, my valuation of what's happening all around, my need to quantify or qualify uh, this person, that person, this situation, that situation, and put me back in my place and say, God is in control, and I'm going to trust Him. He has the authority. He has the authority. What can man do to me? What can man do to me? The sin of arrogance. It's interesting that Jesus wouldn't answer where he was from, but when Pilate states, do you not know the authority I have over you? Now Jesus speaks. You don't have any authority, Pilate, other than what has been given to you from heaven. Do we believe that God would put Pilate into power? Now we're getting somewhere. Greater sin. Wow, this one's, this one's tough. How can there be greater sin? Sin is sin. All sin separates us from God, right? You've got hamartia sin, which is missing the mark. Bullseye, right? Throw, like I try to throw. And you don't even come close. You miss the mark. Now that may be intentional or unintentional. You're doing your best, but you still miss the mark. That's still sin. If you're not hitting what God wants hit, you're still just not getting it done. Then there's parabasis. And parabasis is, you know, my wife says, babe, I don't know. I, I was going to make something up. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to, this is me refraining, okay? This is, where, this is where we basically say, I don't care. I know what the truth is. I know where the line is and I don't care. I'm going to do what I want to do. So what do you do with all that? Bottom line, Scripture teaches that if we just sin one time, the wages of sin, just sin, is what? Is death. And part of the big secret in the room, the sin of avoidance, the sin of arrogance, the sin of appearance, the sin of alignment, all of this is to pretend. Remember the little lemon curd? It's to pretend there's no sin. If we pretend, then we don't feel what? We don't feel bad. And I don't want to feel bad. But what about this greater sin? Jesus says to him, well, let's, let's go back and read it real quick. Verse 11. Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you. 
and given to you from above. And then he says, therefore, he who delivered me over you, over to you, has the what? Now, does he let Pilate off the hook? No. No, he doesn't. Pilate, there's a reason you're afraid. There's a reason you're not finding guilt with me. And you're about to compromise and you know better. He who fails to do what is right, or he who knows what is right and does not do it, to him it is what? It is sin. Even Pilate, who holds to some kind of a pagan form of worship, even he knows this. In Matthew, you will see this in the account of the crucifixion. That's where we see where Pilate goes, and he what? Washes his hands. Even within pagan religions, symbolically, water cleansing over your hands is this metaphor of, I'm free from guilt. Even Pilate, not being a believer in God, does this symbolically because he knows. Even does it before he's going to make the decision. Because he knows that it's sinful. And yet in his arrogance, he continues on. Because why? He's worried about his own skin. He's worried. It's probably why we're so arrogant from the pulpit sometimes. We don't really want to speak about sin because we don't really care about you and your spiritual eternal life. We care about now. We care about you giving and continuing to give. So we want to make sure you feel good about yourself. And so one of the big rules about that in preaching is be inspirational and be funny. I lost both of those today. Preach the word because souls are at stake and because the word is truth. Because it's good and profitable and applies to all things, to all men. You will find your answers in the truth in the Word of God. We need to shake our arrogance in the pulpit. And one of the reasons is this. Caiaphas should have known better being a teacher of the Torah. Why does he have greater sin? Why do the priests have greater sin? Because they knew better. James chapter 3, verse 1 says that those who teach will be held more accountable. This is why Caiaphas' sin and Annas' sin and the Jewish leader's sin was greater because they knew the truth. It doesn't excuse Pilate's arrogance, but their arrogance is much worse because they're trying to pretend it really doesn't exist. You heard their words, right? Our law says that you have to kill someone who calls themselves God. Well, that's true. The law does say that, but they're using the law to work against the truth of who Christ is because He's an inconvenient truth for them. The sin of alignment to finish up today. Verses 12-16. through Let's go to those passages and read through that real briefly. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold, your king. Now he's changed, right? It was behold the man. Now it's behold your king. They cried out, Away with him. Away with him. Crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. The enemy of my enemy is now my what? Friend. To what depths will we sink because of sin? So he delivered them over to be crucified. When we talk about this sin of alignment, we need to look at the reality that the priests and Jewish rulers were willing to align with those whom they hated. They were willing to align with their oppressors. And so, a couple things. Number one, you're not Caesar's friend if you do this, Pilate. And we'll let him know. Political 
screws being turned. We'll let Caesar know. How far are we willing to go in our personal relationships in order to get what we want? How about our professional relationships in order to get what we want? Where are we willing to align where maybe we shouldn't be aligning in order to get what we want? I've already alluded to corporations and businesses that came out at certain points in times and said, this is what we stand for. And they realize that if they're going to move forward in their mind's eye, they're going to have to adjust and become friends with the enemy of their enemy. They're going to have to align with those whom normally they wouldn't align with in order to stay, what, solvent. Because of what? Because of political pressure. Not because of truth, but because of political pressure. Friends, we look at that because it's on the large screen. It's out there all over the world. But what in my own household do I do? Who do I align myself with that I'm guilty of this very same thing? They align with the enemy to kill their enemy. Political pressure often works. And again, the question, who do I align myself with? I'm not talking about political pressure. And and hear me clearly when I say this. Folks, if we're not coming alongside and I'll use Jesus' words, the tax collectors and the prostitutes. If we're not doing that, then we're not being Christ. Right? But remember back to chapter 17, the high priestly prayer. Jesus said, protect them from the evil one and do not take them out of the world. But he didn't ask that they would be in the world. I'm sorry, don't take them, yeah, you know what I mean. In other words, I can insert myself into the world and suddenly find myself a lot like Lot, right? And have the best of intentions and still hold on to an idea of righteousness. But if you examine Lot's words in that crisis where Abraham was asking God to spare his life, there was a whole lot of compromise there. There was a whole lot of maligned judgment there. And you ask yourself, how do you get to that point one day? It's through slow compromise. It's through aligning yourself with those who have nothing to do with the truth. So my encouragement to each of us, and myself primarily, guard over your hearts, for from it flow the wellsprings of life. Where your heart is, there will be your what? Treasure also. For those that are younger in this crowd, let me encourage you, be careful how much time you spend on the internet. Be careful about letting that show you where to go in life. Because that's a dangerous alignment. Find things that are true, good, excellent, praiseworthy, and think on those things. And you'll avoid a whole lot of problems and a whole lot of trouble. Actually, I should say that to all of us, not just the young people. What drives you? You know, the reason I ask this question is because I'm going to ask you, what do we do with sin? And a good way for me to look and see where am I aligned is to ask this question about what drives me. What drives me? My passions and my lust can often drive me. Romans 8 speaks about this. Romans 8 calls that the natural man and that that natural man is not aligned with the Spirit. But that for me to live righteously and to live within the truth of God and to avoid the penalty of sin, I need to live in a Spirit-filled way. And that means I have to be in alignment with the Spirit. So then I have to go back to this question, what drives me? What motivates me to make the decisions I make and, and do the actions that I do? Can I encourage you, test that question. When it comes to these four areas, the sin of avoidance. For some of us, there are things that we should be doing that we're not doing. We're just avoiding them because that would be the hard thing to do. And yet the Holy Spirit's continually knocking on our mind and on our conscience saying, I need you to do this. 
We're not listening to Him. We're listening to ourselves and our own fears. The sin of appearance. Some of us feel like we've got to appear a certain way and look a certain way and act a certain way and speak Christianese really good. Oh, bless you. And yet on the inside, we're rotting away. Let's just be honest about sin. Because when you bring things into the light, what happens? They're destroyed. They're destroyed. But if you continue to hide them, the stench grows worse and worse and worse. If you pretend to be as clean as you want to be, but everybody around you knows something's wrong. The sin of arrogance. This is probably the primary one that we all deal with because we all want to be God. Don't you know? Right? You know how you can tell when you want to be God? When you hear something you don't really appreciate and will require change in your life, and you hear it straight from Scripture, and you're like, yeah, let's turn over to the book of Jude. That's how you know. That there's some arrogance running around in there. That you compartmentalized maybe. And you said, God, you can have this part. I'll go to church. Because that's pretty easy. I'll do the church thing. But God, right, here it is. Don't ask me to be a missionary in Africa. Yes, and Beverly takes high offense at that. Being our Afrikaner in the room. The sin of alignment. Is another challenge for us. How do you get to the point where you're yelling, crucify Him, crucify Him, crucify Him? It's because of who you've aligned yourself with. There are two that were part of this council. Joseph of Arimathea. And let me check you. Who else? Nicodemus. Very good. Very good, Samuel. You get a star on your membership. Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea were two that stood up in the Sanhedrin council for God, for Jesus. We don't hear about them in this crowd. I doubt they were there. They were probably at the second trial for Christ. Not the first one in Caiaphas' house, but, or Annas' house, but the second one. They were probably there. But we see their hearts later on. We'll see it coming up as the story unfolds. What about sin? Well, let me help you out real quickly. Only be content in a clean room, please. Only be content in a clean room. And if, if you hold on to that idea, that addresses those four areas that, I, that I've kind of used as a, a synopsis for sin. Secondly, Psalm 51 is how you get there. Write it down. Didn't plan on going through Psalm 51 today. That's for you. If you're motivated on this level to really start checking how sin has affected you and how you can be free from sin and how you go through the process. I got to tell you, in in closing, let me share one more thing. My daughter's going to score some bank money today because I have a rule and I I have the sin of never paying up, though. Um, Every time I use them in an illustration, I'm supposed to give them five bucks. So y'all ask Jericho a week from now if I gave her $10. Um, Because living in the clean room is a picture of my daughter Jericho. My daughter's room is immaculate. And the problem is we can't ever get her out of it. Is that she's continually cleaning. And then she'll go back over it again. And if something's out of place, she'll make sure it's in place we need to work on this whole rabbit thing and the smell from the rabbit, but the rest of the room is doing fine. Actually, it's, it's superb. And so we often don't see her much because she just loves being in her room because it's what? It's clean. And if something's... I'm going to start doing this with her. I've actually done it a little bit. I don't know if she's noticed, but go in and t- kind of move something, right? Just to irritate, Right? I had a friend like this, type A personality. He was an executive, and at the end of the day, I'd go from my office over to his office. It was immaculate. There was hardly anything. He was a minimalist. There was hardly anything. And he would be on the phone with his back to me, and I'd be sitting there with my feet up on his desk, and, and uh, I'd move a piece of paper an inch so it wasn't straight like that. 
he would turn around, still on the phone conversation, be talking and just go. Folks, this is what it means to be in a clean room. You want to be there. And when something's out of alignment, it bugs you. You get it? You get it? So good job on your room, honey. Dad needs to make sure his spiritual room is clean. This morning, as you contemplate this week, and as we move forward, come back Friday night and hear the rest of the story that is so powerful and impacting. But as we contemplate the events of the Holy Week, look within ourselves and understand the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Through whom? Through Jesus Christ. And sin is a very real thing. To pretend it's not there is to succumb to it and to give in to it and to be destroyed by it. So folks, let's say something if somebody's got some lemon curd on their face, please. Let me ask the ushers to prepare this morning for our offering. Again, if you're visiting with us, please don't feel any compulsion. That's a big fancy word for forced um, to participate in, in this offering. We do it as part of our worship. But what I would ask is if you did fill out this card and you're not doing origami with it, please drop that in the offering plate. Let us know how we can serve you, what you're looking for uh, as a church. And then also we take prayer requests on the back and we're diligent to pray over those things. Let's be praying over our week and what God will do through you, His people, and through this local body um, for His glory and for His namesake. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we move forward in celebrating the resurrection, Lord, we have to contemplate sin first because we have to contemplate the crucifixion. And the crucifixion happened because of sin. The crucifixion happened because of our need for reconciliation and to be redeemed out of death. Lord, let us be honest with ourselves when it comes to living a life in the Spirit versus living a life in sin. Let us not pretend to have everything aligned. Let us not avoid addressing the issues that need addressing. Let us not fake an appearance when we're something that we're not. Let us not hold arrogance. So that we miss who truly has the authority. Let us deal with these things according to your spirit and according to your word. To your glory, Father. Use this offering. Multiply it for your use. Bless the giver. And to your name and by the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.